On this episode of Lawrence Talks, I sit down with candidate for Douglas County District Attorney, Suzanne Valdez. During our discussion, Suzanne shares what has been like running a campaign for the first time, clarifies her position on no cash bail, and how she hopes to create opportunities for more black indigenous people of color to be involved in the DA's office. The Lawrence Talks podcast is produced in part thanks to our partners at the Hall Center for the Humanities, IDRH, the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences, and the KU Philosophy Department. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and online at lawrencetalks.org. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Lawrence Talks, a podcast dedicated to exploring local events and introducing philosophical and humanities topics to the general public. I am your host, David Tomez. Today, we continue our coverage of state and local elections. I would uh, like to welcome Democratic candidate for Douglas County District Attorney, Suzanne Valdez. Suzanne, thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Hello, everybody. Thank you for having me, David. Yeah, of course. And, and uh, so I'd like to begin our discussion uh, the way I like to begin uh, all, these, all these discussions is talking about who you are as a person. And because I think that's important in recognizing uh, the sort of experiences and the values that you bring to the position that you're, that you're running for. Uh, so I'd like to begin there. Who is Suzanne Valdez? Thank you. you know, that's the first time I've had that question. We've been focusing on the issues, and, and certainly I think it's important for people to know who the, the real person is behind the election. And certainly I'm, I'm someone of uh, a, a decent person, a, a good person. Um, I come from a background where my dad was a copper miner um, in Arizona in the southwestern part of the state in a small copper mining town. And um, I have a brother who was younger than my younger than me, but who's passed away because of PTSD related to his uh, service in the army and in the Gulf War. Um, and then, of course, my mother and a very large extended Hispanic family, um, but very hard workers, very determined people, very caring people in their communities, and always very focused on integrity and again the work ethic. We don't like injustice. I think that's the way I've been brought up. We care deeply, of course, about each other, but we care deeply about our community and making sure that we have a solid community that we can rely on each other. It's very much a Hispanic cultural background where the community is your family. um, And that's something that's very important to me. I've always grown up with that. And so no matter where I've lived, I've lived now here in Kansas for 25, oh gosh, going on 25 years longer than that actually probably a little longer than that i um feel that kansas it's my home now my children have been raised here i have five children and i've really taken i think i think about my father who actually um started working when he was 10 years old in nogales arizona trying to provide for his family and he's got a hard work ethic and very determined individual and a passion for his family and his community and i think that's really who i am and who i've been all my life and I've tried to translate that into my work professionally and really with my own family. And it's kind of difficult for me because I'm the one that lives in Kansas, but I have very strong community ties to Arizona and my family there in Arizona, which is still very, very important to me. Getting to you running for district attorney, what are some of the things that you've noticed in our in the Lawrence community at least as, as external factors that went into your you deciding to run run for this office? So, 
if you look at my background, I started off as a legal services lawyer doing legal aid work for about seven years in Kansas City, Kansas, and then came to Lawrence and did it with our law school here at the Legal Aid Clinic. So social justice has always been very important to me. And I felt like as a woman of color that I really needed to be involved in the legal system. And what I saw was, at least early on, a very white, institutionally white system and I always felt like no matter what role I served in, whether it was as a legal services lawyer doing defense work or, you know, any type of work for clients, that I was the minority, right? And there needed to be more of us. And so my opportunity at the law school has been wonderful because I think we've seen more young people, people of color coming to law school. And I really try to mentor them. I try to get them to see the importance of public service and the importance of their involvement because we do need more representation in terms of you know brown people, black people, people of color, uh, and certainly combine that with women and, and the gender uh, as well, which is important. So getting to your question, I really believe that we need more women of color in this, uh, in the criminal justice system. We just aren't seeing it. And I think that we need to reflect, the prosecution office needs to reflect the diversity that our communities, the community that we make that makes up our community. And I think if we have that, we'll have much more confidence in the outcomes of what we're seeing in the profession. Um, and that's one of the reasons that I became a prosecutor as well, is I really wanted to get in there and understand why is it that people of color are charged? Why is it that our jails are full of people of color? Why do we have a mass incarceration problem? Is there any way that I can make a difference? And I believe that I have. I've made those made a difference in trying to advocate for alternatives to prison, for pretrial release programs, for trying to get people um, on a right path to being productive members of our community. So that's something that's very important to me and one of the reasons that I ran. The other reason that I will say is that I really want to encourage other women and women of color to run. We need more of us in public serving in these public roles and these elective roles because I think that those voices need to be heard. And then, you know, the last couple of points I'll make is that the local government decision in terms of who you who you elect for these positions, these people's, they're really people's jobs are so vitally important to, to government and to voting and to voice and, and your, your vote counts in this election. And so I really wanted to, to get that out there. And I think this election has shown, I mean, just look at the numbers of people who have registered to vote and who have requested advanced mailing, uh, the mail-in ballots. This is great. And I just, I wanna ensure people, assure people that the vote matters. And then the last thing I will say is I really want to be a role model for my children. All of them, I've got five of them, four within the young voter range, and I wanted to them to understand the local process. And in, I, I sense some apathy, and I wanted them to engage. And I think that I've gotten young voters to really engage in this process, and I hope that they do and realize that their vote does matter. And in, in the regarding your point about getting more people of color and and especially women uh, uh, by POC, Black Indigenous uh, people of color involved in the process, what sort of impediments have you recognized? And I guess speak a little bit more about that. What sort of impediments have you recognized or noticed that are sort of keeping them from being more involved? Or I guess structural impediments, and then there are also uh, what are some of the I guess cultural maybe impediments that may be discouraging women of color from, from being more involved? 
One thing that I've learned about this process filing for office is my motives were always in good faith. I really believe that we needed change. I really felt like I have the record to make that change. I believe I worked really hard for my record. Having grown, grown professionally for the last 24 years and 27 years, if you count legal education, those structural impediments have always been difficult for people of color. And when, you, when you're a woman and a person of color, even more difficult. Um, there's a saying that goes around among women of color that it's like, you know, if there's a, a strike because you're not white, there's a strike because you're a woman, there's a strike because you're you're a person of color. And I think that that's, that's true. I mean, we always have to work harder. I feel like we always have to work harder. We have to prove ourselves. And so when I entered this race, I felt like I had 25 years of, ex almost 25 years of legal experience and I had a proven record. And what I found was that the election process is you're, you're vulnerable. You put yourself out there for criticism and criticism oftentimes can be unfair and can be um, posed in a way that really goes to the core of who you are. So I've really struggled with that. And honestly, when people are not informed about the issues and people aren't informed about the candidates and can make pronouncements, especially on Facebook and, and social media behind a screen that just just isn't isn't fair and can be cruel, that really discourages individuals to put their name their name in into the into the ring. And I've been it's been a very difficult process for me. Um, but I believe in what I'm doing. I believe in the reasons I'm doing it. I am acting in good faith every day of my life. I've tried to do that. And so I'm going to continue to try to do that. But yeah, so to your question, I mean, I think there's some systemic barriers, but I also feel like it's the, the gap between sort of the qualifications of the individual to ultimately getting the job, right? Is fraught with so many impediments, including the uninformed voter, just people who are mean. We're in a culture right now where we can't even have dialogue about the issues. Everything's personal and um, people make attacks that just are, are very gratuitous and vicious and mean. And that's been really difficult. And I think at the end of the day, when people say to me, would you do this again? I don't know if I would have. I mean, to be honest with you, it's been really difficult. And it, I guess it, that's bringing that topic up of, of sort of public discourse as, as a DA, uh, or if, if you were to become a DA, how would you at least work within your role to, I guess, help that situation or improve that, that situation in terms of dialogue between elected officials and, and, and the public? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And one that, you know, my record has shown, um, that I am a collaborator, I'm a communicator, um, and to use the, I said, I think it's sort of a, a saying that that's at least in my family, um, you know, we bring people to the table, literally and figuratively, right? Um, we eat around the table, we talk around the table, um, we, 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 we debate, we disagree. I mean, that's part of my culture, that's part of, but we, at the end of the day, it's about being around the table. And so when you think about that analogy and translate it mm -hmm. to who I am, that's really who, who I am and what I've done. And I think that's one of the key pieces of what we're missing here in Douglas County is that um, that lack of communication, that lack of you know, collaboration and communication, all those things to get people to the table 
so that we can come up with solutions. And one of the things that I've learned about during this election that's really been a blessing is that there are so many people who care about this community in ways that align with my interest in terms of social justice, sexual assault, you know, all of racial justice, of course, all of those things. And we really want to move our community forward. And so I, I really believe I, I'm, a, I'm one of those individuals that has tough conversations because I've had them all my life. And so that's the role of the district attorney. And so I wanted to draw a distinction between that as my strength in terms of my leadership and just making the distinction in terms of the difficulty of running for public office where you're trying to engage people about the issues, you're trying to get, trying to understand where they're coming from and they don't engage. Instead, what they do is they just make attacks without being informed. So there is a clear distinction. And I really feel that in my role as district attorney with the stakeholders that are going to be involved and that want to be involved and want to be at the table, I think those discussions can happen in a way that is respectful, that is courteous, and that is really focused on coming up with solutions for our community. And do you plan to, I guess, create a formal way of, of bringing people to the table, I guess, within within your role? Or is that more of something you expect to take place more naturally or organically? Sure. No, and I think it's both ways. You know, we have the CJCC, which I was just on there listening to their call, their meeting today. And, you know, that's formalized by the county commission, which is great because it's getting stakeholders appointed in the body to really talk about issues related to criminal justice and and possible reforms, including, of course, racial injustice and the overcrowding of the jail. So it's that kind of formalization, but it's also the organic kinds of conversations that you have with people. Um, you know, just to give you an example, Kansas Appleseed, um, who I talked with, uh, it seems like a, a long time ago, but certainly during this campaign, I mean, they've, they've amassed an amazing amount of data on certain issues that is so relevant to reform. And if we can somehow come up with either a formalized way of doing it, which I intend to do, because I think that gives credibility to what it is the DA's office is doing, but also these informal, more organic conversations where we're data sharing, where we're looking at what information people have collected, bringing it together so that we analyze it in ways that are constructive and that we can put together a plan, a community plan for how we're going to look at these really tough issues. Um, That's something that I really want to be a part of and really want to serve a leadership role in. And you, in this next question, you you sort of touched on uh, a little bit already, but I wanted to ask it a little bit, maybe more directly. I think what this election regarding uh, the role of the DA has shown is that there are some questions about, or what people expect from a DA within, within that very specific role. So I wanted to ask you, what do you consider to be the scope of the county uh, DA's position, and I guess you can put this in the context of uh, advocating for policy change at the state level. Uh, is that something you find within the scope of of that of that position? Sure. Yeah. So you know, the district attorney is the top prosecutor in the county, but there, the DA and its and, and the DA's office are part of really a system of justice, which includes judges and includes police law enforcement, the sheriff's department, the stakeholders who have an interest in, in seeing reform. So and so I think if, if you think about it globally, while it is a, an elected position, it's a nonpartisan position. So let's just make mm-hmm. that clear too, along with mm-hmm. the sheriff's department. And so we're part of a whole system of what it means and what we want to see in criminal justice and criminal justice reform. And so I think for a long time, for a while now, and that's one of the reasons that I'm running, 
is that there's been a lack of confidence that the DA is taking some leadership roles and cert certainly communicating with all of the the wheel, the pieces of the of the of the wheel, if you will, in the justice in the justice wheel to really collaborate and think about reform and 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 when we talk about progressive ideas, those ideas come from having these conversations. And these include making policy arguments to the court, I mean, to the to the legislature. Let's keep in mind, though, that the district attorney is required. We've got laws that are in place that the legislature has passed, good, bad, or ugly. Now, how we go about enforcing those laws and how we go about coming up with policies to address the intricacies of those laws, I think, are up to the district attorney. And that's where I come in, really want to make sure that those are fair, that they're racially neutral. That we really look at who we're who we're charging, who's in our jail, all those things are within the control of the district attorney. But we do have the um, what I call sort of the the framework of laws that are we're required to follow. So so yeah, I think that it serves a role of enforcing the law within certain policies and guidelines that are put in effect. Certainly, with collaboration with stakeholders and all the stakeholders that I've just talked about to come up with something that's workable for our county and makes sense. But also understanding that, yeah, there are may, there may be laws. For example, this the the idea of, of no cash bail. Well, we have cash bail required by the Constitution and by law, so you can't eliminate it. The DA cannot eliminate it unilaterally, right? So, so what can the DA do? And I think that was one of your questions about, you know, I haven't taken a position on it, and I actually believe that I have. My position is that for serious felony crimes, there, you know, we just had a couple of days ago, someone was charged with aggravated battery of a shooting here in Lawrence. So someone who, who had a weapon and, and, and you know, and, and, and shot the gun, is that a violent offense? It is. And is, some, is the community safety at risk? And I believe it is. Should bail be put in place? The answer is yes. And constitutionally, it's mandated. Now, low level offenses where that are nonviolent, where there's no reason for bail to be set, my position of the district attorney's office would be to allow those people to be allowed on their own to appear, right? By 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 providing notice to appear or an OR bond was which is an own recognizance bond, um, but not put those individuals in jail. So that's my position. My position is violent offenders we need to ensure community safety and that and that's important but everything else i am wholeheartedly support allowing those cases and to argue and to, for it to be the policy of the da's office not to require a, a bail amount now keep in mind that it's up to the judge ultimately to decide how these how if bail is going to be ordered or not and if the issue is on a policy perspective whether we want to engage the legislature to change those rules and change the law on that. And that's something the community wants the district attorney to be involved in because they feel strongly about that. I am absolutely on board with that and serving that role. Yeah, and, and that was sort of the, the sort of follow-up question I was going to have is, is that what, as you mentioned, a lot of a lot, the way it's set up in Kansas, from my understanding, is that discretion is given to the judge uh, to decide bail based on the crimes that the person is accused of. And uh, so to what extent can the DA get involved in that, in that deliberation? So you're right. You know, the, the district attorney has a lot of, of power in the charging function. 
you charge someone with a crime and it can change someone's life forever. And if there's anyone who appreciates that, in fact, it's, it was my sort of my primary interest in getting involved with the study of prosecutorial ethics. As I saw a lot of law students, law applicants actually, folks wanting to go to law school who had a criminal record, right? And so in the admissions process, they had to explain themselves over and over again for being charged with a minor in possession or something that was seemed to be sort of an indiscretion from their youth. And it really got me thinking about charging and right, if this person had been charged or not been charged, how would this, how would this have changed things? And so you're right, the charging function matters a lot. Keep in mind also though, that oftentimes the, the district attorney's charging function is reactive. In other words, the individual may be booked over the weekend for let's just say an altercation at a bar, police go in, they do the arrest, and then, then under the under law, the DA has to charge. So it's really like, we've got this bad set of facts, what do we do with it? And then we've got to move quickly to get the bond set and whether, the, you know, identify whether this person's going to be released or not. So there's a lot that's going on in a very, very short period of time. But I think that that's where the district attorney can be really, really helpful and certainly take more of a focus on spending, being deliberate about looking at what's happening in terms of providing guidance to law enforcement about who do we arrest, who do we put into jail, who do we release, you know, what, how are we handling these cases as a law enforcement matter? And I would really love to have a great relationship with law enforcement so that they can have clear guidelines and policies about that. I think that they believe at this point that they don't. And so they say, you know, if I could just get clear direction on whether the prosecution office is going to be filing these cases or not, that would be really helpful to us. So I think it starts there and it starts again with that collaboration. And then I also think your point is right. You know, what are the policies and guidelines that we have for purposes of keeping people in jail and, and asking the court to release them. And those that's where the DA can really say, listen, for low-level offenders, nonviolent offenders, judge, we don't want a bond. Court's going to decide what the court's going to decide. But if you have clear parameters on that, I think we're going to start to see a culture where maybe you know we can get people to, to be on board with that. And then, you know, there are some programs that are that are out there, the pretrial release programs, although I think there's some problems with those with that a program and that there's a lot of conditions that are placed upon individuals in order to get out, not be in jail, that are um, so onerous that it's almost like being kept under a very tight, you know, tabs by the district attorney that sometimes some people just can't follow through on and then they end up going to jail because they didn't do what they needed to do for pre-release. So I, I really feel like we need to look at what we're doing, what the DA's office is doing and come up with some streamlined guidance so that the prosecutors know what, what to advocate for and that law enforcement knows what they need to do on their end to keep the jail population um, where it needs to be, only keeping the violent offenders booked in when we have situations that, that call for that. And so just to uh, help summarizing your position on, on this point of, of no cash bail, you want to work with, well, one, you're in a sense required as a DA, any DA is required to work within the parameters that they're given when they get into office. But at the same time, there are things that you can do uh, within that framework to uh, functionally do away with cash bails, with certain, uh, depending on the crime. And two, or three, finally, you're in favor of advocating in favor of no cash bail policies by the legislature in the event that 
the your community agrees that's what they want you to advocate for. Sure. And I think just to clarify your second point in terms of advocacy, I believe this community, if there is a violent offender who is shooting someone, uh, killing someone, murdering someone with a gun or any other weapon, uh, taking someone's life, we're not going to want that individual out without a cash bail. So violent offenders, believe me, my, my guess is that the community is going to say, no, we want to make sure that there's a bail imposed. Now, people can make the, that bail. We saw that happen in June where we had a violent offender in the Douglas County Jail and his bond was set and people, he was able to bond out and he went to Overland Park and, and shot a police officer de to death. So the, the cash bond is there as a sort of a protection, if you will, but that's people can, can make that bond. He did in this case, and that was, we had an unfortunate consequence of that. But at least it's a protection to keep violent offenders in jail for maybe even a short period to help de-escalate a situation and to keep our community safe. Um, and I think that that's important. And, you know, I, I cannot go so far as to say no cash bail ever because I just don't think that that would be good for our community safety. But I can, I can go as far as to say these violent offenders, short of that, I'm in favor of that because of what we've seen in terms of disparity and, and the way it plays out for our, um, our uh, racial minorities and, and socially economic disadvantaged people. And so great, thank, thank you for that. Thank you for those clarifications. This next question is, has to do with, uh, you mentioned data, an, data analysis and data sharing as one of the drivers of, or one of the things that you definitely want to bring into your, to your role. And certainly we, I would agree, most people would agree that data is great in determining what one ought to do in particular cases. But at the same time, data cannot always give a clear answer as to what we ought to be what we ought to do in a given case. So one way of bridging that, or the main way of bridging that, is talking about values and talking about what we want to, what the good is that we're aiming for in, in a particular case. What are the values uh, and, and I guess, ideas of what's, what the just thing to do is in a particular case? Uh, what, are the, what are those ideas that generally that you bring uh, to your decision making? Yeah, so you're right. You know, the data and the, the information that you gather, you put into sort of analysis, and then what you end up with is as good as the information that you put in it, right? And how do you get that information? How do you gather it? How do you value that information? Do you value this information over that? And some, and you're right, I think it's about, it's, it's, a, it's a call based on your value system, right? On what you want to sort of ultimately look at. And so you're right. I think a lot of the, it's putting the cart before the horse and you have to figure out what is it that you value so that we can then really get down to, you know, brass knuckles and figure some of this stuff out together. I do think that we're in a, a state in our world, in our society, where there needs to be some evidence-based um, decision-making. Um, and so this is why I talk about data and collecting data. Um, because I think that's what drives people ultimately to move one in one direction or the other, depending on, on you know, the context. So, so you're right. I think that, you know, when we hear stories from people, when we hear people's experiences, when we understand the impact that the criminal justice system has had on people of color, on Black Lives Matter, all of that, right? We see it, right? We know it, we see it, we experience it, but how do we quantify it in a way so that we can come up with these numbers that make sense. 
probably the best example I can give to you is the data that was recently released by Dr. Matt Cravens with the criminal the CJCC, where he was talking about the numbers of black inmates at the Douglas County Jail and how it far exceeds the national average. Uh, and certainly, you know, he made comparisons to our population and it was just stark. I mean, it was just, wow. We know that our jail here has got an overwhelmingly large number of black inmates, right? And it was so striking that we're all reacting to it like we should be, but how did we get there? Right? How do we get to those numbers? How we got to those numbers is we had the last couple months, we all know that racial injustice has been going on for hundreds of years, but it took uh, the protest, it took George Floyd and a whole list of other of our black family, family and community members across the country to die for people to finally say, we value that and now we gotta look at this. So that's a really good example of how we come up with the evidence-based information to make people move and do the right thing in terms of decision makings and it fuels decisions, I think. So to your question, that is why I think having open communications and dialogue and talking about what people see, talking about what people experience, talking about how people are impacted by the criminal justice system, right? That we have those conversations, we embrace the bad facts, we embrace the ugliness, and we that's gonna drive what we're gonna do to try to get data and evidence-based sort of information so that we can make change. So this next question is more about, I guess, the the political nature of uh, the district attorney. Really, the, so they're, one of the first major checks on any political office is uh, the public opinion. And generally just, just the, the public in general placing pressure on their elected officials to not only do what the public think is the right thing, but also to engage with them and to and to sort of identify, you know, why did they do this or why are they enacting this particular policy? But uh, so most of the time, this uh, this pressure is a good thing, and it, and it works to either limit limit power or at least direct officials into into going away where maybe they were blind to or just overlooked for some reason. But at the same time, the the public may not have it have it right because the public may maybe not have may not have all the information or the information that that the district attorney might have and so how do you plan to balance this this dynamic between the between the public and or public opinion and or yeah or or actually so how do you plan to deal with a maybe a a possible scenario where a public opinion is saying one thing but the data uh, that you see at least, uh, and that assuming you've done all the things you've needed to do to uh, get all the all the data that you possibly can, uh, is suggesting something something else. How do you hope to deal with that uh, as as a DA? Yeah, so you know, law enforcement and prosecutors have have taken a really big hit in this last couple years, in particular, of course, these last few months in light of what we've seen in the national landscape, and deservedly so in many respects. And so, you know, what's happened is I think there's been this lack, there's a lack of public confidence just overall, I think, in law enforcement and by extension prosecutors who engage in misconduct. And so the public is like not trusting of, of the DA's office and they're not trusting of law enforcement. 
And it's important for this next official, elected official, um, and it may be Mr. Branson again, but it may not be. We've got to rebuild that confidence. And how do we go about doing it? We do it through accountability and through transparency as best as you possibly can. And one of the things that I am very proud of is that as chair of, of the Kansas Crime Victims Compensation Board for nine years, I walked into a situation where we had a multi-million dollar fund of up, of up to $4 million that we would give out, if you will, to victims of violent crime, but we had no budget, we had no balance sheets, we had no financial statements, we had no accountability, and I was mortified by that. So it, may, it was my goal to get in there, get an audit, get financial statements, figure out our budget. And long story short, um, by the time I left in 2009, we were fully accountable for every red cent, including postage. I felt very comfortable with everything, the money that was going in, the amount of money that was going out. We knew what kinds of cases we were giving compensation for. It was um, just something that I was very proud of. My point is that we put all this stuff on the website. We made it very clear to people they, if they wanted to know how many cases we had on sex, sexual assault or battery or how many cases we were giving uh, compensation for for domestic violence. Hey, these are the numbers. So we've got to be able to engage that way in a way that people feel like they can call up and say, can you talk about these cases? Why, you know, what's happening here? Why do we have, why is this going on? And I, I appreciate, especially now in this election process, how people glom on to sound bites um, and oftentimes can be uninformed. And that is why the D district attorney has to be that individual who, despite what they're saying in terms of what this is why I'm backing up this decision, keep extending the invitation to come and and learn about why that decision was made. And I think the way that we can continue to do that is through forums. The, the Zoom world now that we're seeing has opened up so many opportunities for, I believe, you know, public um, meetings with the district attorney's office that we can talk about topics that are uh, important to the community, cases that have been charged, especially if they're high profile, you know, those kinds of things where we can engage the community. Because I, I, I just have always been, I'll, I'll give you everything I have. I've got nothing to hide. I'm happy to explain. Now, you may disagree with me, but this is why I'm doing what I'm doing, and I'm, I'm happy with that. And and one of the the I guess the last few questions I have here, my my wife was a spent some time in Ken, in in Lawrence working as a paralegal, and and so this question comes from a a scenario that uh, she's noticed or that she noticed in her time as a paralegal, and and one that that I think is is important to note. I think all DA, all, all of the candidates, uh, yourself included, have advocated for the value of fairness and uh, fair representation. And uh, as you may know, given the sort of the community and, and, and demographic makeup of, of Lawrence, I guess to put things lightly or put things in a, in a sort of nicely, uh, is, is that we may not have the services to ensure that everyone is adequately and fairly represented say on so like the example that I, I sent you and I think uh, that I'm trying to get out here is uh, when we have maybe someone who doesn't know English very well uh, someone who speaks speaks Spanish primarily and there may so there may be a question of whether they're being adequately represented because given the the language barrier and uh, not just the language barrier but also connecting 
just what the legal system is requiring of, of them, uh, just what their lawyer is trying to get across to them. There may be some question if there are those sort of barriers or if there are those sort of concerns as to whether they, that person is being fairly represented. So what are, this, what are some things as a DA that you can do in responding to those situations, whether it's someone on the, uh, on the defense side or someone that's on the, on the victim side, whether, on whether, whatever side that they're, that they're on, is there any, anything that the DA can do, uh, whether it's within a particular case or even or more broadly as in terms of policy, that can deal with those sort of, those sort of situations? Yeah, no, that's a great question. You know, one of the things that I dealt with in uh, as crime victims comp chair is we have a rule that in order to, um, and it's a, it's a, it's a statute um, that guides how we give compensation. But one of one of the things that has to happen is either the vic- the victim has to cooperate with law enforcement. And to your question about Spanish speakers, what we found was that some Spanish speakers, well, they don't understand English, number one. Number two, some of our Spanish speakers who were victims, I mean, victims of violent crime, didn't have documentation to be in the U.S., so they were worried about that. And there was lots of reasons why they just wouldn't cooperate. And so, you know, what happened in those cases is, well, we had board members who said, well, we just have to deny compensation. I said, no, 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 no. We're not going to do that. We are going to acknowledge that these are the reasons why someone may not cooperate with law enforcement. Okay. Mm -hmm. And what we're going to do is we're going to engage that individual and we're going to figure out why. And we're going, and oftentimes I'd get, we reach out, we get advocates to come in who could help folks. And we resolved it in a way that made sense for that individual. Now the system itself is not fair, right? Because the law says this, and the folks in law enforcement interpreted it that way that this individual wasn't cooperating. Another example is why do young black youth run from police when, they, when the police just is cruising by? Well, because they're afraid, because who knows what's gonna happen if, if the police officer stops this, this, this kid, right? So there's reasons why people react, they're cultural, they're, it's the racism, it's all those things that we've, that we've seen play out recently. And so I think the key part in all this is to acknowledge that it happens. And for someone in the district attorney's office, in my position, if I were elected to say, this is happening and enough is enough, we're not doing this anymore. And I don't have all of the solutions, but what I can do is I can say, we're not doing this anymore. And we're going to engage and we're going to figure it out, whether it means deploying multidisciplinary teams, whether it means ramping up on resources to get, for example, in this example of, of Spanish speakers, someone out there to be a part of, of addressing a situation that's come up with law enforcement. It comes down to acknowledgement, it comes down to training, and it comes down to holding people accountable that fairness is our goal. And we've got to come at it from these angles, and we've got to have someone who cares about it. We've got to have someone who's who's experienced it, having my own family and my own, you know, close very close family involved in the criminal justice system, untreated unfairly, and of course, uh, Black Lives Matter and all of that. But we need to be able to say, this isn't going to happen anymore, um, not on my watch. And beyond sort of specific solutions, I can tell you that there, there are people who want to come to the table on it. There's law enforcement that I've talked to who have said, we just need training. We just need someone to say, this is what we're going to do. And they want to engage. And I, I believe that, that we need to get going on it and we need to, to, uh, to, to, to make it workable for our communities so that we do have fairness. And on the issue of, you know, you're right, 
we just can't afford the Constitution and our statutes don't require representation for low level or for, excuse me for misdemeanor crimes and arrests and those kinds of things. And you kind of wonder, you know, if we could somehow have a more robust community involvement on these issues so that we understand what those guidelines are and how we're going to go about dealing with community unrest, especially when it involves people of color and, and sort of the impact it's had on them. I think we can we can really go a long way to addressing a lot of the unfairness issues. Great. Thank you. And one of the uh, these final questions I have for you is that evaluating the the job of a politician can be can be tricky you don't know what in part because at least on on your end or at least the, not your specific end but the end of a of someone in office is that some of their policies might take time to take full effect but at the same time you know you you still voters still need something to go off of still need something to uh, base their decisions on uh, in evaluating your job what by what metric do you think is fair to judge, a, or do you think a district attorney should be judged on? And how do you uh, basically hope to be judged when your your term, were you to be elected, uh, is comes up? Sure. No, I think it's a very fair question. You know, I think we need to recognize that these are where we're at right now in the election cycle. Is we are in very uncertain times, right? I mean, we've just had we have a we're in the middle of a pandemic. Um, we're, we have a national election that's happening. Um, we've got some leadership in the federal government that is questionable and that people, I mean, we've got our really a situation where our, our nation, I think, is very torn. Um, we've talked already a little bit about the inability to have really open and candid communication, difficult conversations about how, about very important things. So I think we also, we have to think about sort of the times that we're in and the promises, if you will, and the platforms that are being put out there, if you will, by the candidates, right? I think there's three issues though that I think you can measure in four years from now, right? Sooner, obviously, when the election cycle starts up. We know that jail, the, the expansion of the jail has been going on for a few years and it's finally reached, finally reached a a really, really, it's reached a really difficult, like a point, right, where we're going to have to decide one way or the other. So it's, it's a break, not a breaking point, but certainly it's, it's, it's hit a, a very top uh, important where to need to make a decision on that. So the jail, the expansion of the jail, and that's important because we've seen mass incarceration throughout the, the country. We know what our numbers are. They're not good. We know who's in those jails. We know it disproportionately affects racial minorities, et cetera. So I think the, the jail, and how that's handled is going to be a metric, and it should be, because this has been brewing for a long time, for a few years, and it's something that I've been very, very interested in and been watching, and one of the reasons that I decided to put my name in the hat as well, but that's a metric. I also think that, that you know, related to the jail issue is what are we doing, and it, it goes to mass incarcer incarceration, what are we doing to prevent incarceration, right? So what are we doing in prevention? What are we doing uh, these prevention programs? And I believe that we've got the community, we've got the community stakeholders to really come together and as a community and come up with really robust prevention programs that keep people out of the criminal justice system. So I think that's also a metric that can be used. How, how good are those, those prevention programs? And the last thing I would say that is a metric is what is the success of these specialty courts? I've been a big fan of specialty courts. I'm, I was actually very disappointed that we only got our drug court uh, in December. 
They've been around since 1989. We need to incentivize our drug courts. The DA needs to be supportive of our drug courts, at the same time giving recognition to, to victims and survivors and the impact it has on them. And I, I want to wrap up by saying that all of these metrics, I think, are important. And I do know that with, for example, reformative justice, right, which is an alternative to incarceration and certain, certain other forms of, of, of the criminal justice system, it's the ability for the offender to take accountability for their crime, to involve the victim in the community and come out with hopefully a plan, if you will, to restore sort of the, the individual, hold them accountable, restore them back to the community and, and sort of this forgiveness and all of that that's part of it. But having done it with Crime Victims Compensation Board for nine years, we saw it. We saw victims of violent crime who really wanted to make peace with the, with the people who, who, who victimized them. Um, that goes to the human spirit and, 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 and it's successful and it works. Um, so those are metrics that I think that I stand, that I, that I hope to be judged by. And that I can say in four years, I think you're right, David, that it's going to take some time, but the idea is already there. You've got some great foundations, finally, for some of these, these specialty courts. Um, let's really work on getting those to be a more robust uh, part of the DA's office with support, like I've talked about, and incentives for completion. Let's talk about prevention. Let's keep our jail numbers down. Let's figure out who's in our jail. Let's really hold the DA's office accountable for those numbers because they're not good. And let's keep our community safe. And at the same time, right, it's that balance of can we keep our community safe? And I hope that 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 at the end of four years, if I am elected, that, that, that the voter, I can say to people, these, this is what I wanted to do. And this is the progress that I made. Great. And th uh, thank you for that. And before I, I let you go, are there any things that you would like our uh, listeners to take away from our discussion today? Sure. I, you know, I, I just want to thank you for your time. This has been great. And it's, um, I started off being a little nervous um, in talking about who I was and who I am and really what's behind the person here um, that's running for office. And I, I want people to know that I am very justice-oriented, very justice-focused. I want to do the right thing by my community. I care deeply about my community. I want, I have been very, very concerned about the direction that our community was going with, with the district attorney's leadership and certainly with what we were doing with criminal justice reform. And everything that I have said to people about my desire to serve, I've been public service for all my professional career in some fashion. Um, so I'm a public servant. And I am sincere in that. I, I really want to be a part of the solution. I really want to engage our community who I know, I've talked to so many people who care about our community and want to move our community forward. And so I want to be a part of the solution. And so I've engaged in this process because I know that this job is the people's job and it is up to the community, to the Douglas County community to decide who's going to lead us in the next four years at least. And I hope that to build public confidence back in this office and for us to really come up with constructive and productive solutions to making our pe people in our community feel like they're being treated fairly, like our victims have and survivors have a voice by holding offenders accountable when necessary and keeping our incarceration numbers low and, and so that everyone feels like they're getting a fair shake. And that's really who I'm about. That's who I've been about all my life. 
And so I appreciate your time. And I, of course, appreciate a vote for anyone and everyone who I hope has registered to vote on August 4th. Great. And if you want to know more about uh, Suzanne's platform and, and generally about who she is, you can go to her website at Suzanne4DA.com. Again, that's Suzanne4DA.com. Uh, Suzanne, I want to thank you again for joining me today and having this conversation with me. Thank you. Mucho gusto. Sí. Thank you. And thank you all for, for listening, and we'll see you, see you next time on uh, Lawrence Talks.